everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Brent Donnelly. He is the president of Spectrum Markets. Brent has been trading in the market since 1995 and writing about global macro since 2004. He is the author of multiple books, Alpha Trader and The Art of Currency Trading, and he writes a must-read global macro daily called AMFX. Uh, during his career, he's been a market maker, a trader, and a senior manager at some of the top banks here in the U.S., and a portfolio manager at a major hedge fund. In this conversation, we talked about uh, Brent's uh, macro trading strategy, which is a more tactical approach, and why he sees room for an optimism trade right now. We also revisited his time trading during the dot-com bubble and why he sees a similar scenario playing out maybe in 2023. We got his take on the Fed, uh, currencies, and also uh, this indicator he's been looking at around magazine covers and why certain magazines might be a bit contrarian. I really enjoyed this conversation with Brent, and I think you will too. Brent Donnelly, president of Spectrum Markets and author of the Global Macro Daily AMFX. It is so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, Julia. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, and I'm especially excited to have you on, Brent, because we keep getting requests to have uh, more guests focused on Forex and currencies, and so you are the exact person I want on this show with uh, more than 20 years of trading experience, so I was hoping just for the folks to get to know you, let's kind of start there with your trading background and, and how you even got interested in trading Forex. Sure. So it's funny because it's an interesting moment for like fiat currency traders because crypto is actually less volatile than some things like dollar yen, which is, you know, totally unheard of. Um, so it's an interesting time. Um, so way back in the day, this is like in the when I was like 15 years old at Wall Street, the movie came out and Liars Poker and there was like kind of like a wave of of Wall Street things. They were all cautionary tales, actually, ironically, but um, what they did was attract me to want to be a trader. And unlike now where there's these complicated analyst programs and you rotate for two years through all different desks, when I got hired as a trader out of university or out of college, um, they basically had three seats and they said, okay, go sit with each of those people for like four hours and pick which one you like. <laughs> and one was structuring product or structured products. One was T-bills and one was the currency trading desk, like the FX desk. And structured products is like slow moving. It's more like cerebral quant kind of stuff. T-bills don't really move. It's more like a funding the bank kind of job. And so my vision of what trading was, was like a lot of yelling and flow and stuff like that. And that's what the currency trading desk was. And so that was like June, 1995. And I pretty much traded on an FX desk or I traded FX at a hedge fund for a few years. Um, pretty much consistently from that time with a couple of breaks. Like I, I actually traded my own money for five years and wrote a cartoon that was on TV in Canada. Um, and then, like I said, I worked at a hedge fund for a few years, but most of my career, I've been trading FX on a spot desk, running the desk most of the last like 20 years. Okay. Wait a second. Um, you said you, sorry, I'm, this is total, a total tangent. You said you wrote yep. a cartoon that was on TV. What yeah. Was, what so was that? my, thing like throughout my career has always been like trying to balance like I'm a creative person I like to write and you know like I like you know art and Japanese you know animation and I like all that kind of stuff so trying to balance that with trading which I also love which is more obviously a different part of your brain it's like puzzle solving and math and all that kind of stuff so about two years after I started I was working at Merrill Lynch at that time in New York and FX was very flow oriented in that time. So there was no like you didn't take positions. There was no global macro. It was just like people screaming, sell 100 and you sold 100 and you bought them back. And that was about it. So I felt like it was a little bit like playing blackjack all day, um, which like if you love blackjack, sounds like it might be fun, but then gets a bit grindy after a while, you know, like a bit repetitive. So a friend and I, so I was still only like whatever, 23 at that time. And so a friend and I had written a movie script uh, which was something kind of dark. It was like in the days of um, like Memento and movies like that. So we tried to, I actually quit my job to try to get that produced and we were not able to get it produced. We were very naive. And then 
we created a pilot and with my last last ten thousand dollars that i had from the merrill job um we got it animated like really janky animation for ten thousand dollars and then we got a contract with the studio in in montreal and then they made the show so uh it was on for two years but the business model generally is you try to make it in canada and then sell it in the us and so it wasn't selling in the US. So then that was the dot com bubble. So I started trading my own money. Um, and I took like my I had 25 grand in that account. And I took it up to about 350 400,000 in the bubble. And I was like spending, you know, I bought an M3, I was paying my rent and stuff. So I, I had a very strong methodology that was like consistent, the same, I was doing the same thing, and it was consistent. But then in 2002, the bubble burst so i could explain why my methodology didn't work anymore but i don't know if that's of interest but the bubble burst and the show got canceled at the same time in 02 or 03 actually it was 0203 so then i was like uh now i'm getting to be like 28 um my account had gone almost all the way back down and i'd spent a lot of it as well so i was like oh i better get a real job and then the transformation of the industry at that point really helped me enjoy the job a lot more because a lot of things got automated. So like the really boring stuff of like just someone saying, Hey, sell 2.3 euros and, you know, small transactions like that, um, which were all manually executed when I started had become automated. So then the job of a trader became a lot more about like positioning and like having a view. And then as time went on, I got more confident than talking to clients. Um, and then as time went on further, I started writing, around 2004 and then that sort of has evolved to this product that I sell and write now in yeah. 2022 um what what was the show called can, can um, I so watch it, was, it it was called Daft Planet um there's a couple of things I have to say so first of all that was in like peak South Park <laughs> and so the trend in the industry in animation at that time was story matters more than animation so the animation is not very good it's like it's actually the claim to fame was it's the first uh television cartoon that was made in flash do you remember flash mm, like the uh, it, it was like a java kind of yeah i was thing. gonna say for computer programming or something yeah it was like yeah. an online animation thing where like if if someone wanted to run an animated website they used flash so they actually used flash to make the show and the other thing is um, when my brother downloaded them to, to YouTube, it's so long ago that the limit was 10 minutes. So if you actually want to watch a show, you have to take, you have to watch two clips of 10 minutes, but it was kind of like, it was riffing on pop culture and like how things are getting crazier and music and all that. And then we used a lot of like more kid things to make analogies to like adult things. So we had an, a thing about addiction to video games but that reference Requiem for a Dream and Train Spotting and things like that. So we were trying to do the kind of two level thing where it's it was kind of aged for kids 10 to 15. But if you were 25, um, you probably found a different a different brand of humor inside. Yeah, that's still pretty cool. And you mentioned um, writing and that was how I first found you. I actually found you on Substack of all places, but I know you've been writing since mm. 2004 and um your writing is incredible. Like you definitely have a way with words. And I just want to ask you like one, how did you get into writing? And then two, how has that helped you with your trading or investment process? Cause I I'm kind of hearing from other folks that writing is a key component of their oh, like man. investing style. I would love to hear from yeah. you. I don't know if you're setting me up on purpose, but that's a great setup. Cause I mean, that's a huge thing that, that I believe very strongly in. So the sort of like hard evidence that I got for that was, so I started writing my my thing in 04 and I would write it every day. And it's usually just like was one page at that time. And it's kind of like, here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to do today. And once I did that, that obviously would anchor me on a, a rough plan. And then also people could see my positions and stuff. So if I said like I'm raging bullish Euro and then was undisciplined and got short Euros 10 minutes later, somebody would say like, hey, dude, you said you were bullish Euro. What the hell? So it was kind of had this two levels of discipline. One was just writing a plan is like a huge step in the first place. And then also, you know, like the general thing is if you make your commitment public, there's more likelihood that you'll stick to it. That's why they have like those commitment websites. And, you know, that's why if you work out with someone, you're going to do a lot better than if you try to just work out by yourself. Um, 
So that was kind of like, I knew it was kind of, it was good for my trading, but I didn't realize how much until I, when I worked for Lehman Brothers, when it went under. So when Lehman went under, I went to a hedge fund and I couldn't really write there. It's kind of like cooking for yourself. Like in a way I could have written for myself, but it's just not the same thing. So I noticed like it was a pretty dramatic difference in the sort of patterns of thought where I could come into and sit down and there'd be a headline. This was in the Eurozone crisis. So there'd be a headline, Spain downgraded, and I'd just start hitting buttons and I'd be short 100 million euros on a headline. And like, that's stupid. There was no no edge in that. And um, so I really noticed from that experience that the writing sets like a kind of like a basic plan and like no you don't always stay with your plan and i'm very nimble like i'll change my mind halfway through a day if if things change but i do find and the other thing about writing stuff down is so there's research on this and actually i talk about it in alpha trader which is my book about like mindset and and risk management and the sort of like intricacies of trading uh beyond trade ideas which is very well covered in a lot of literature but more about like mindset risk management stuff. Um, but there's a lot of research that shows if you write something down, then your brain codes it as like, this is important. So like you have millions of thoughts all the time and they're swirling around and different modules of your brain are conversing and having different opinions and all that, right? But when you write something down, then you're you're essentially emphasizing and you're signaling to your brain, okay, record this, like this is bigger than all the other random things you're thinking in your head. So like I find with this, with stop losses, for example, um, I'm, now I automate all my stops because you can do that. But in the past, you couldn't always do that. So I would have a stack of index cards and I would write like, you know, if I'm long, whatever, JDS Uniphase was a big stock that old people will remember from the, from the dot-com bubble. I would write like sell JDSU set like 261 on an index card. And then that would be in front of me. And that is a lot more powerful than thinking like, Oh, I'll stop at it when it goes to 261. Because when you have it in your mind, then when it gets to 261, you go, ah, oh, well, you know what? There's a level here. And I 261 was just an idea. Maybe I'll stop at it at 258. And then, you know, when it gets to 258, you think about 255. So by solidifying things, um, you, you tend to then do the behaviors that that you want to that that you're hoping for. Um, so I'm a huge believer in um in writing things down, like journaling. Uh, is also useful because like if anyone's ever used a trading coach, really all they're doing like most of the time, and this isn't a uh, uh, criticism, it's it's just what I think generally what therapists do is get you to talk and then you, you know, you get out your thoughts and then when you see your thoughts, you go, oh yeah, and you, you understand your own thoughts better and you understand yourself better. And I feel like writing can accomplish that as well. So right from like planning to like, while you're in the trade, which is like the stops and stuff like that. And then the the postmortem or follow-up stuff where you kind of think about what I did right, what I did wrong, um, and what emotions were in play that may have been to my detriment. I feel like writing stuff down is just a, a really big part of your process. And the other thing is it's hard. So like, it's hard to stick with it. So it's a really good source of edge and 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 solid risk management if you can do it because Honestly, just most people can't do it because it's just hard to stick with it. Yeah. And also like the content that you put out, it's engaging and like actually enjoyable to read. It's not like try and boring, um, like maybe some some like research that's put out there. And I just want to plug for folks who are watching and listening. Um, you mentioned Alpha Trader, which is one of your books about like mindset, um, mm -hmm. the art of currency trading. We also mentioned the top here, the Global Macro Daily AMFX. And you have a new one out, the Almanac, um, which was cool because I flipped through it and um, you talk about writing down like your strongest views plan uh, and your end of day journaling. Yeah, well, that's why I thought it might have the question might have been a setup because that that book just came out today. So essentially, the, the genesis of that was every day in the morning, I print out this thing. It's like dailysheet.xls and it's like my plan, my stop, whatever, like just different aspects of what I'm going to do. And then I was thinking, oh, it would be cool if this was all in a book, because then each year I would have a record of all my thoughts and, and actions for the year. And then like five years later, I'd have five of these books and that would be cool. And then I thought, oh, actually, you know, what? a lot of people would probably find this book useful. And then I started thinking about around that same time was 
there's there's a strong seasonality in equities where equities go down basically like the long and short of it is they tend to go down for a part of September and then they tend to rip around October 9th. And interestingly, this year they followed the seasonality pretty much to the day. Um, and it's hard to remember all the seasonalities because a lot of different currencies and stocks and a lot of product asset markets have seasonality. And so I thought, oh, maybe in this book, I should also put like on April 23rd, I could put like the next six, six weeks are seasonally bullish time for crude oil, et cetera. Um, so then I started like kind of thinking, and anyways, populating this book with, with information and then also some like coaching tips from Alpha Trader and a bunch of stuff like that. So I think it ended up being a pretty cool product. It just came out today. And I mean, the ultimate thing for me is that I'm going to use it and then like, hopefully other people will buy it and, um, and find it useful. And I, I really, really think that writing down your plan, your stops, and, and then you're kind of like assessment after is one of the keys to just being successful and, and understanding yourself and finding your leaks. So even when I worked at a bank, I would send not necessarily even to like a manager, because like usually I was kind of like the senior manager on the desk. And then the manager above me wasn't really a trader usually. But I would just like one of my peers, I would send this email called 12 back 12 forward, which was 12 hours back to 12 and 12 hours forward. So I would assess my last 12 hours and say like, you know, I followed my plan, I did this and, but I moved my stop three times and, you know, I let the client run me over and this and that. And then that would be 12 back. And then 12 forward would be, you know, my overnight trades are this, I'm risking, you know, $400,000 on this trade and my stop is here and this and that kind of thing. So I, I'm a massive believer in that. And I don't think it's a personal thing. So a lot of things in trading are personal, right? It's like, it's all about your personality and, and fitting your style to the personality. But I would say this, what I've been talking about for the last like seven or 10 minutes is pretty much universal, having managed a lot of traders and, and worked with a lot of traders. Yeah, it's probably helpful for like, especially aspiring traders who might be listening or um, those who could benefit from uh, these tips. So let's, um, move and, and talk about the global macro view for you. I would love to start with the global macro view and also like your domestic view. And then we can kind of dive in on some of the themes that might come up. What are you paying attention to today? So the biggest thing really now is, is anyone going to join? So, okay, first of all, I just have to say people have been talking about Fed pivot. That's not the right word. Like there's no pivot happening. And pretty much everyone agrees with that. Even people that are saying Fed pivot. So you have to say like something more like Fed pause or Fed slowdown or something like that, where they go like 75, 50, 25. They're not going to be cutting rates in, in the next six months unless like some cataclysm happens. So the question is whether like they keep going full speed um, or really what is their, if, do they keep pressing the brake as hard as possible, is, which is what they're doing? Um, or do they kind of, slow down a little bit due to long and variable lags. They say, okay, we've hiked rates a lot. We're getting close to neutral. We might even be above neutral. Should we slow down a bit? And so Brainerd is on. So I would say like there's like team pause, which is sort of team team let's chill out here for a bit, um, which regardless of like whatever I think, which I think that makes sense. They've hiked rates a lot and rate hikes take a while to, to go through the system. Um, but forgetting about what I think is right, because that doesn't matter. What I think will actually happen is those people. So daily joined team pause this week. And I think that team is going to gain more and more um, adherence, not necessarily at this meeting, um, but either this meeting or the next meeting. I think you're going to see that the market may have got ahead of itself in terms of hikes. And so there, there's two different ways of looking at it. One is and it's the same thing in Europe and the UK is like things looked absolutely horrible and now they look less bad. And that's kind of how it looks with U.S. monetary policy. That's how UK fiscal looks. And that's how the EU energy story looks. So they're all not great for macro, but they're all less bad than they were like four weeks ago. So right now I'm, I've been playing stocks from the long side um, and the dollar from the short side. My time horizon tends to be like relatively short for someone who's macro. So my time horizon is usually like one week to one month. Um, so what I'm doing more is like 
observing the whole global macro narrative and the equilibrium and then trying to determine how that narrative is going to change and then surfing the wave and getting off kind of thing. So currently, I think the wave is that we can see, like, we don't know exactly what terminal rate's going to be for the Fed, but like, we're pretty sure it's not going to be six and a half at this point. And it's probably not going to be four or anything like that, because we know where, you know, where we are. So the, the, the band of uncertainty around Fed policy is narrowing and the probability that they slow hikes and potentially even pause by early 2023 is increasing. So that stuff is all good. And that's why I'm bullish. And then also, like I said, the seasonals into midterms are very bullish. But the problem looking further out is that the economy is going to get hit by, by higher rates. So the U.S. will get hit the least because mortgage resets specifically, which if you want, we can talk about that. I don't know if that's boring or not. but No, it's not boring uh, at all. Okay. So there's an issue in many countries where, um, like the U.K., a friend of mine, his mortgage is 1,500 pounds, and it's about to reset, and his mortgage is going to be 5,500 pounds. And that's not like a freakish anomaly. That's kind of like, you know, when you go from base rates of minus 0.5 to base rates going towards four or whatever, uh, mortgage rates have gone up insane amounts, right? So the same thing in Canada, you have a lot of um, what what are called fixed mortgages are actually more like three-year variable, or sorry, three-year fixed. So it, tr it acts more like a variable rate mortgage because in three years, you're going to have to reset. So if the housing frenzy in Canada, say, started in 2020 and went into 2021, then in 23, 24, you have this cliff of all these new mortgages where all those people were reaching like absolutely to the clouds in a in a country. And this isn't specific to Canada, but I'm just talking about Canada because I'm Canadian, I guess. But um, in, in a country where people were already stretching and the, the percentage of income going to housing was already super crazy. Then now in 23, 24, you're going to have mortgage resets where people's mortgage is literally doubling. Their mortgage payment is literally doubling. So, and then in the EU, you have uh, the energy stuff, which is still like a rolling thing that's going to hurt in the winter. Um, and then of course, in the US as well, you know, the more the rate hikes from the Fed, because debt doesn't renew every single day, if, you know, if interest rates go from zero to five, which they basically have in a very short time, the pain doesn't come right away because most of the people that borrowed at zero are still making zero payments, right? Like, or if you borrowed at one, you're still making payments at one. But then slowly over time, everyone's debt, whether it's corporates or, or individuals, starts rolling over. And then that's when the shit starts to hit the fan because, say, a company like Carvana that was borrowing at super low rates to fund an unprofitable business, and I'm just picking on them because, like, they have a lot of debt. But... Um, when it comes time to roll that debt, it's it's you know, whatever four times more expensive, and and then those companies start going bankrupt. Um, so I think we're going to enter like the more slow bleed phase later, but I think that'll probably be more like in twenty twenty three. And I think now there's room for an optimism trade, where the market's been very very short. The tail risk in the EU of so the tail risk in the in the EU was we're going to run out of energy and companies are literally going to have to sh shut down and they won't be able to produce goods anymore. Um, that's not happening. They've stocked enough energy. In the UK, the the tail risk was Truss is spending a lot more and she's decreasing revenue. There's going to be a doom loop where UK bonds collapse and that triggers a global fixed income collapse. And I mean, we saw that for a couple of weeks. Now she's gone, Sunak's in, that tail risk is gone. And then in the U.S., there was this sort of like a less concerning but still concerning tail risk of like a convexity event in fixed income where essentially the bond market just blows up because people lose faith in in government's ability to pay for it. Like people were three weeks ago, there was sovereign debt crisis, you know, blogs and podcasts going around. Um, and maybe that will happen one day. But the, that tail risk has dissipated somewhat in the short term. So usually when tail risks dis dissipate, it's hard to quantify like how much things should reprice, but it's bear. It, uh, sorry, it's less bearish. And it, it, by definition, that's kind of like bullish. And that's what we're seeing now is the tail risks are getting priced out. The shorts are covering. 
But is that sustainable in a world where rates just like went from zero to five and everyone's about to get hammered? I don't really think so. So bigger picture, I still think you sell rallies, which it sell, sell rallies in stocks, which has been my view pretty much all year. But um, but I think this this rally could, you know, if we're at 38.50 now, we could go to 4,000 or 4,100. Got it. And that kind of goes back to like you mentioned, um, like your time horizons, usually like a week to a month. And you see room for like this optimism uh, trade. Let me ask you this. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the Fed and the Fed losing credibility. How does how does that impact um, what they might do? Um, does it mean they might hike like for too long or what what do you think because it seems like the whole inflation is transitory thing from last year and they have even more stuff happening uh lately but what do you think about their credibility and how that might tie into their actions so i i generally used to be more of an apologist for the fed i used to be like you know it's a hard job and you know no one can forecast because the the reality is I don't think you can really blast people for forecasting poorly. Like, yeah, some people forecast inflation a lot better than than the Fed did. But those people generally, a lot of them were forecasting inflation in 2010 and 2011, 2012 as well. So forecasting is hard and the evidence shows that humans are not great at forecasting. On the other hand, um, like waiting till February to stop buying MBS is just completely stupid. And then all the front running and like scandals and all that, I think have really hurt their their credibility as well, because it shows that really they're they're working for themselves and not for any any greater good. So like, you know, what all, all the front running of their own policy has really hurt their credibility. Um, I think going back to the transitory thing, so they were wrong and you know, a lot of people were wrong about transitory. But the the issue now is that that has given them pause on on setting policy according to forecast. So there's really only two ways you can set policy. One is based on a forecast or one is based on the current reality. And so they've kind of switched from, okay, our forecasting was bad and now we kind of have like look stupid. So we better just err on the side of being tight in order to make sure that we don't like double down on our credibility problem. So to me, that means most likely they'll stay, they'll, after staying loose for too long, mostly for the past, whatever, 15 or, I don't know, you could say 25 years, really. Um, generally, they were always too low for too long in most people's minds. Um, they'll probably stay too high for too long now because the risk of, they, they, they back off and then inflation goes back to 8% is really really problematic and that, that's kind of what happened in the 70s right is they every time they tried to back off uh inflation just started ripping again so they definitely don't want that although i do still feel like you know they claim to try to be like volcker or whatever they're not like they're not even close to in terms of how tight real to the point where real rates are is not even close but i think in the end to, to just answer your question clearly i think what this credibility shock will mean is that they'll be looking at lagging indicators like CPI for way too long and they'll end up staying too tight for too long. And that's part of why I don't think like this, this recovery or this bullish little wave that we're in is sustainable because inflation is going to be relatively sticky. Like even if it goes back to three or 4%, um, you're just not going to get the same thing that generally what you've been getting, like say 2018, 2019 is the transition just goes straight from hiking to cutting. Um, and I don't think that's going to be the case this time. And I think the markets are going to end up eventually being disappointed with that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like this little um, optimism trade or bullish wave. It's it's not sustainable for the long term, at least on not, not right now. Mm. How would one like want to I don't even know if you can even share this, but like, how would one want to even like express this optimism trade, or it, how how would one go about doing that? Like, what? How do you play? Well, it? yeah, there's a bunch of ways. So the the kind of interesting and potentially good or bad thing right now is that there's a lot of correlation between all the markets. So like, when the dollar starts selling off, people are like, oh, why is the dollar selling off? Oh, because yields are going lower. Why are yields going lower? Oh, because stocks are rallying. Why are stocks rallying? Because the dollar's selling off. Like there's this sort of like cycle of, of where everything's highly correlated. 
So what that means is that if you have the view of things recovering, there's lots of different ways to play it. Um, so what I've been doing is is long equities, like just so this I kind of had this view pretty much like two days after CPI, I started getting more bullish simply because of the price action. Like there's a really simple concept in trading, which is bad news, good price, um, where you have bad news and you close higher. Generally, like a really simplistic way to trade that is just to be long until you make a new low. And so that's what I started doing um, in equities. And then I also added short dollars. So, I mean, it's it doesn't matter really which dollar you pick these days um, other than dollar yen, which is very idiosyncratic. Um, so like short dollar Norway, a lot of people are doing long sterling because the, the Sunak thing um, makes the tail, like I said, the tail in the UK is kind of gone. And then you can argue sterling maybe is a little bit cheap here. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to play like, you know, uh, Personally, what I tend to do is focus on FX and then, but then I also trade single names. Um, I trade like call spreads in Brazil, you know, I'll, I'll trade kind of almost anything. Like I'm bullish Brazil right now um, through the election, just because I think there's more good outcomes than bad. To be honest, Brazil hasn't been trading well this week because um, there was some violent type stuff happening related to Bolsonaro last weekend. Um, but overall, uh, not investment advice, but things like call spreads in, in EWZ, because that's the Brazil um, ETF. But like I said, honestly, if you're right about the general macro direction, you'll probably make money. And the, the weapon of choice isn't as important right now. Um, and I think that's just like, I think we talked about this actually last time on the on the podcast about um, Bitcoin as a hedge for bad monitor or loose monetary policy. Um, but that's one thing that can be really frustrating for people that focus on one asset class. So like someone that trades Bitcoin or copper more or oil or whatever, is that a majority of the time or not a majority, but a good portion of the time, it's just a macro story. And it like all those things are moving together and you can do all your supply and demand analysis on copper inventories in London warehouses. But if the dollar goes down and stocks go up, pretty much 100% chance right now that copper is going up. So it's a good time for macro and it's kind of like a bad time for, for people that focus on individual markets within macro. Um, but then again, of course, there's still divergence and, and then you kind of try to figure out what's going to be the best play. So that's how I would look at it is like, I'll, I'll have my overall, I always have like my overall, I kind of think things are re, re-inflating or deflating, like bullish or bearish as a general kind of like broad view. And then usually there's stories that I like that I'll pick. So if I'm bearish, I'll stick to the stories that are bad. And then if I'm bullish, I'll stick to stories that I like, which is like Norway, Brazil, and S&Ps right now. Because your your style is more like tactical, like like a bit more short term. Do you do you ever do like longer term um, viewpoints on, on on trades? No, so I never do because what I find is that the two things get mixed up, and then you start mixing them, and and your short term trade that you were going to hold for two weeks goes to your stop, but it gaps through, and you know you forgot to leave your stop overnight. And then you're like, ah, oh, you know what? I kind of like this company. I think I'll just keep it. And so the bad trades turn into investments. And then also I feel like the most important thing in trading is to know your edge. Because like, if you don't have like a really good idea of why you can make money, then you probably can't. And like, I've had periods where like I was trading something that I didn't know what I was doing. And then if I either tried to zoom in and figure out, okay, I have a specific edge here or, or I stopped trading the thing. And I just feel like if I look at like all the people that are doing investment analysis um, on longer time horizons, and then you look at the performance of all those people. And then I look at me not even working as hard at, at it as them. I just feel like there's no chance I would make money on longer time horizons. Whereas I feel like on shorter time horizons, I know that I have a lot of specific things that, that can give me edge. Um, and those change over the years. Um, like when I was day trading, I just had one specific strategy that I just used all the time. And now it's more holistic and I kind of incorporate a lot of a lot of different things. Um, but 
the short answer is like, I just have no edge on, on time horizons, but beyond about a month. And so I would caution anyone listening to this, that, you know, the, a week from now, I might, I might be bearish again. It just, it depends on so many things because it's usually a combination for me of positioning levels, technicals, news flow. And then a big thing for me is like, what's the current narrative versus what is priced as the narrative. So, you know, if energy crisis, UK fiscal crisis and fed funds to 6.5 are all in the mix, and then those are all out of the mix and prices haven't moved yet, which was the case like a week and a half ago, then I'm like, okay, now I'm bullish. But then as everything reprices, then I tend to be, you know, then I'll get out. So um, that is, I, I like, that's not really a full description of my edge, but my edge is in analyzing the kind of like the ebbs and flows and surfing the quick waves. And one, one last thing I'll say about that is that I think also your style has to fit your personality. Like I know a lot of people like from conversations with other traders have tried that, that have tried to do what I do and have not succeeded who are generally more swing traders who trade like three, six, nine month time horizon. And generally they're more like thoughtful, slow moving personalities in general, I would say, whereas I'm more like chaotic gambling kind of personality, um, which comes with like a lot of negatives as well. But the positive that comes with that is that, uh, you know, fast trading style and very open minded, like strong views, but weekly held is kind of the cliche. So I'll have my views, but I'll always be willing to flip. Um, and that's just my personality. And I think that suits my personality and, and trying to trade more than one time horizon at the same time is generally a disaster, I would say. Brent, I like that strong views weekly held. Um, I want to go back to something you brought up at, like toward the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about like your earlier days in trading and um, like around the dot com bubble. And you you were like you shared like how your account went from like, what was it, 25, 35,000 to 400,000. And then you saw your account go down. Um, I'm a millennial. So like a lot of people. I guess, yeah, my generation was not really in the market. So we're probably like middle schoolers then. Um, so that was probably like the like real proper bear market. Um, do you ever think about that? Like how younger folks in the space? I mean, I guess, I, I don't know if we were, yeah, some of us weren't on, on Wall Street during the financial crisis. Hmm. Do you ever think about like my younger generation or my generation not having that kind of experience? Because I guess a lot of us really weren't present on Wall Street during the financial crisis? Hmm. Well, I definitely see that in that there's this sort of Pavlovian by the dip mentality from a lot of people. Um, and I think what that is, is a product of quantitative easing from 2010 to 2021 was pr pretty much anytime stocks go down or anything goes down, you just buy it and eventually it goes up because the Fed is accommodative again soon enough that you never really have to feel any pain. Um, and to me, this actually feels very much like 01, where you just had like a ton of malinvestment, massive liquidity shock, uh, like way too much liquidity, all going into companies that are unprofitable um, and like dream, dreamy kind of pie in the sky stuff. And so what happened in, in 2000, 2001, which is unlike 08 and very unlike 2020, was it was more like uh it would be more similar to like crypto winter in in 17 or sorry in 18 and 19 where it's just like total despair grinding there's no v-shape it's just like stocks go down every day and people think the stock market's stupid and everyone that had started day like had come quit their dentist job or their doctor job to become a day trader goes back to being a dentist or a doctor and so 2021 and 2001 have a ton of similarities. Like there was a huge day, day trading boom in, in 2000, again, in, in 2021. And a lot of even like the, the language around like these sort of like in-group things, like they were different, obviously, like Wagme and Friends and NGMI and HFSP and all that stuff. There was kind of like this in-group slang ar around the internet um, bubble as well. And so there's definitely a lot of similarities. And that's why I kind of, uh, my core view, if I'm looking out further, as I said, I don't trade that that far out, but my core view looking out further is that probably we do get something similar to 0102, where eventually it's just like complete despair 
and people have kind of given up on on stocks as a thing and probably crypto too to be honest because I, I feel like in order to get the real cleansing um you need just like the despair phase to happen and i don't really feel like that's happened i feel like actually in crypto especially people are pretty pretty optimistic because of the 2018 um analogy that you know bear markets are time to build and all that and i think it's gonna there's gonna be a gut check in 2023 when everything's just grinding 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 and in in stocks what happened was so the other thing that i've noticed it that it, talking about generational stuff is that an easy trade most of the last 12 years was whenever there's a lot of bearishness you just buy so like you can look at whatever sentiment indexes or like relative moves in VIX or whatever. There's a lot of ways to measure sentiment, but whenever the majority is bearish, you just buy. And the problem is like that works in bull markets, but it doesn't work in bear markets. So like in 01 and 08, uh, the majority of people were bearish the whole way down. And so what happens is you get these massive short squeeze rallies and then bad news hits. And that resumes the bear market. And then you get another rally and then more bad news. And we've kind of seen that in this as well. Like, I don't know if you remember in July, we rallied to like 4,300 on, on, it was just like a massive squeeze. And then CPI, the bit, the really bad CPI came out and then we dropped to whatever, 3,600 after that. And so now we're in the mid, the, essentially like bear markets need fuel and that fuel is bad news. And so in 01, it was like this rolling series of bad news of accounting scandals and bankruptcies. So whenever you, whenever there was a rally, then like WorldCom went bankrupt and then like the Enron thing happened. And there was always just like this en endless stream of bad news. And my guess is that 2023 will probably look like that as, you know, Carvana goes bankrupt, then Peloton goes bankrupt, then like this company goes bankrupt. And just all the companies that are unprofitable they all have a burn rate, right? And nobody's burn rate is one day or nobody's like runway is one day. They, they all have runway to get to some point. And one by one, we're gonna see in 2023, a lot of companies probably slowly running out of runway. And then that will, to me, is probably what will feed a much more like 2001 type of thing. And just one last point on that, like just to show, just to kind of explain how crappy everyone felt in those days. So Google went public in i can't remember if it was 03 or 04 but it was like way after the lows like the lows were i think october 02 and they basically couldn't give away the stock and like google was a great company like everyone used google as their primary search engine already in 2004 but people were just so down on stocks they were like oh this company's never gonna make money i don't know what the point of it is it's just like a you know a free service that they're offering so that's how how down people were in whatever, sorry, I don't remember, but I, I say late 03. Um, and the bear market started March 2000. So, you know, a, a real true bear market um, can go on for a couple of years. And that's kind of what I, that's my best guess of what we're going to see here, unfortunately. Interesting. Do you think it's um, the, is it the Fed's rate hikes that will you know, break things. And that's what transpires is like, maybe some companies go bankrupt because of higher, like, what is it? What's yeah, the path I there? think it's almost like the, the, the hikes that have already happened will be the, the cause of the pain. And then usually the pain is, has been relieved very quickly by rate cuts, but this time it won't be because I think inflation will be sticky. Um, so it won't be as easy for the fed to come to the rescue. And I mean, even in 2000, the, the bottom didn't come in until they had cut like 12 times. I mean, rates were higher at that time, um, but it's not guaranteed that the first cut it saves the world anyways. But I just think it's going to be very difficult for rates to come back off. And what that'll mean is that it's it's more like it's almost not really the break. Like, yes, things break, but it's not this cataclysmic 08 or 2020 thing. I think people are more used to that as like the way that things play out. But that's there. There's plenty. There's if you look further back, there's plenty of bear markets where it's more just like this grinding series of of cracks. It's it's not really like a, a spontaneous whatever schism and or earthquake where everything just crashes and then V-shaped bottoms and explodes higher, which um, is easier to trade and and psychologically less exhausting. 
Um, but there are, are there are also bear markets where it's more of like a basically they tighten and then it's just like and it's just squeezing, 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 but it's just slowly squeezing the liquidity out of the market. It's not um, completely crashing the market. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I want to bring up a, a different subject with you, but it's something I see that you talk about on on Twitter quite a bit. And that's like the different magazine cover. So it's like, you know, whatever the headline is, say like the dollar's dead or I don't know. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you can you share with folks this kind of study you've done? I think you've done the study on Bloomberg Businessweek, Time Magazine, The Economist, and Barron's, and what you found by looking at the covers and how the market reacts. Sure. So I've always been fascinated with anecdotal evidence. So there's a, there's a whole range of different things like if a country builds the tallest skyscraper in history, like in the world, that country tends to experience a financial crisis very shortly after. And it's not a coincidence. It's it's because that only happens in a period where things are extremely optimistic and money is plentiful. And so it's a signpost of like hubris and, and overconfidence. Um, so, and then people like the magazine cover indicator existed before I started talking about it. But the thing that I found was people would just cherry pick magazine covers in hindsight and go like, look, at the bottom, this Business Week thing said this or whatever. And so to me, it felt very um, like unscientific and just kind of like bullshit because you, there's so many magazines that come out. Of course, some of them are going to be contrarian. So I decided with a, a guy that I work with, we did a study of we did The Economist, Barron's, Business Week and Time. And what we found was, and to me, this is very intuitive, was that Barron's and Business Week are just coincident, like it's random. If, if something's on those covers, it doesn't mean anything in terms of forecasting. But if a market or asset class is on The Economist or Time Magazine, then it tends to be statistically significant um, that it's contrarian. And the, the simple reason for that is that if you think about the concept of of priced in, like when when a narrative is fully priced in, you can't make more money from following that narrative, right? Like if everyone knows the internet's going to be huge and stock prices have quintupled, the odds of you saying the internet's going to be huge and then buying it and making money are not very good because like that's the concept of priced in. So at some point, information is fully priced in the market. And so if you look at magazines that are not primarily market focused. So Barron's and Business Week are market focused, right? There's market stuff on the cover almost every week, but The Economist and Time Magazine are less so. So like Time is obvious, but The Economist is more about geopolitics and, and political economy and stuff like that. They, they don't talk about markets that much. And certainly the, the cover doesn't feature a market, a specific market all that often. So the criterion is if the front of The Economist features um, something that is clearly directional, like spooky time for housing or whatever was the most recent one, um, and it refers to a specific asset class, so in that case, housing is an asset class, then six to 12 months out, that asset class tends to outperform significantly. Um, and so like we, you know, we look back as far as we could get the covers and it still works, like it works out of sample. And the, I, I think it's something that will just always work um, on average. Now, nothing's 100%. So like, you're not going to make money every time. And anyone, you know, no strategy works. If you can find a strategy that works like 65% of the time and pays 1.2 to 1, which is kind of like what this is, that's a good strategy. Like no, no strategy works 100% of the time. Um, but it still works out of sample because the very fact that someone is writing about like a journalist, not a trader. So a journalist is writing about this market thing means that that first of all, that thing has been going on for a long time. That thing is very front of mind in, in everyone's mind. And so by definition, that thing should be priced in. Um, so like recently, I think in March, there was a thing ab about it. There was a picture of uh, a piece of wheat and it said like food shortage crisis coming or something like that. And like literally two days, that was two days later was the high in wheat. Um, Elon Musk on the cover of Time was like the the high in Tesla. Um, so there's there's many examples, but like I'm cherry picking two that worked perfectly. But 
the whole point of the study was to not cherry pick. And so it is a factual statement to say covers of The Economist are contrarian um, six to 12 months out. Yeah. And same with Time Magazine as well. Also, contrarian. Time so as you just, well. do you just like yeah, the, bet the opposite of what's on the cover? Yeah. The thing with Time is like they, they reference markets so rarely that like it's it, it's almost useless because like the sample size is like eight, seven or something over the past 20 years. But um, and did I explain all that properly? Like, did I leave anything out or is that? no i was just curious because i was just i noticed on twitter that you you would often and a lot of people would like kind of like cc um at donnelly underscore brent um (laughs) there's a few indicators that like i've just like find super fascinating um so that's one they're usually like anecdotal things like the other one is how humans are obsessed with round numbers like it's called round number bias and like i won't go into it here but if anyone wants to google it it's super interesting basically and you know like if you if you're filling up the gas, even if you're paying credit card, if it's at $9.99, you, you click it to get it to exactly 10. Like humans just like round numbers. Um, and that manifests in markets in various ways. So there's a, there's a few things that I'm like particularly interested in. Turnaround Tuesday is another one that they're just neat phenomena that the, the thing that I find fascinating about some of these things is that they work out of samples. So like if you study financial market data there's a lot of data and the a lot of ideas that you can test and go like ooh that's interesting like blah 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 euro goes down on you know every fourth friday 29 times in a row but a lot of that is just like data mining and it doesn't work out of sample so the stuff that fascinates me is stuff that has been discovered and it just keeps on working year after year to me that's because uh, it's a kind of a violation of efficient markets hypothesis is super interesting to me. Yeah. Well, Brent, I've found this conversation very interesting and I want to pass it back to you to share any parting thoughts with the audience and also go ahead and plug where they can find your newsletter or your books or follow you on social media. Okay. Um, so really everything is at spectramarkets.com. That's, that's my company. So you can sign up for AMFX there. Uh, my books are on Amazon and um, yeah, that's really all I have to say. And I'm on Twitter, uh, Donnelly Brent. So I'm, I'm easy to find. And if anyone has any questions about anything, they can always reach out and email me or DM me on Twitter. I'm always it. happy to talk. Well, Brent Donnelly, president of Spectrum Markets. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Julia. Take care. Okay, see ya.